Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 1, beginning at the 18th verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. So here's the basic question. How can a loving God send people to hell? And when somebody asks that question, they're usually thinking very specifically. What about my neighbor, who's a really nice guy? What about that friend of ours? What about my grandma? How can a loving God send people to hell? The Christian doctrine of hell is incredibly hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp philosophically, but especially personally. And one of the reasons we have to understand is that we come from a cultural understanding that pushes against everything that hell suggests. For example, in our culture, the goal is to maximize freedom and choice. It's what we live for. And the result of that is that we would say that most people in our culture would say you can't really define sin because it's really a subjective and everyone's left to do what they want to do on their own. You can't judge somebody else. So for God to do that is incredibly hard to hear. No one's allowed to judge me and I'm not gonna judge anyone else. So I can't receive a God who might have some version of judgment. Our cultural understanding influences our personal perceptions and makes it so that something like hell or judgment is incredibly hard to grasp and receive. We've got to have some way of approaching this question, so here's my basic plan. We're going to hit on four things. One, judgment, God's judgment. Two, sin, because I think underneath that is what is sin? How do you define it? Third, hell, what is it actually? And fourth, love, can God still be loving if these other things are a part of what he is? So first is judgment. Let's start on the fun part. In Romans 1.18, Paul writes, as he's describing basic Christianity to his audience, here's how it works, guys, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. God's wrath is being revealed. 
In the book that we're reading along with this sermon series, The Reason for God by Tim Keller, Keller quotes a young woman in Manhattan who says this, the only God that is believable to me is a God of love, not of wrath and of judgment. I refuse to believe in that God. And I think that's much easier to say if you are from the West like us. If you've never experienced horrible evil and tragedy, but what if you have? What if you have experienced evils done to you, horrible things done to you or your family? Do you know if you look through history, many people get away with it. There are lots of horrible, evil people who never get caught, who never have just punishment in this life. Inside each of us is a sense of anger and outrage when we see evils done, perpetrators. There's a sense in all of us of what is right and of justice. And if we don't sense that justice exists, our natural tendency is to want to take justice into our own hands. It's to be vengeful. You know that phrase, vengeance is mine, that's actually from the Bible? But vengeance is mine usually ends up in our own heads as mine. And the question is, is vengeance God's or is it mine? In the 1990s cult classic, Princess Bride, this character plays a significant role in the movie. His name is Inigo Montoya. Now, Inigo Montoya was a boy when his father was murdered by a man with six fingers. As a young boy, seeing his father murdered with impunity by this six-fingered man, Inigo Montoya determined to become the best swordsman he could and revenge and get revenge to kill the man with the six fingers who murdered his father. He has a famous phrase, right? Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. He rehearsed that again and again until the day that he met the six-fingered man. If you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. From a boy to this age, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. The problem is that the history, even modern history, is riddled with that very same mantra. There are cycles of revenge that we see all over the globe. Jew and Palestinian, Shiite and Sunni. In Rwanda, it was the Hutus and Tutsis, where decades of one being in power was reversed in a month of genocide. I'll get you back. In Yugoslavia in the 1990s, it, it came to the surface as Croats, Serbs, and Bosnians, friends, neighbors, began slaughtering, raping, killing each other because of past crimes, taking vengeance into their own hands. See, without a God of judgment, we will eventually take things in our own hands. And if you've experienced evil against you, if you've dealt with abuse or tragedy, you know that feeling inside that the guilty must pay. They must. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian from Yale who writes about his experiences in Yugoslavia during this war 
and reflects on a God of judgment and justice. And he says, we need, this world needs a God of judgment. The only way that you can believe, that you can say that we don't need a God of judgment is from a suburban home. If you live in a war-torn land, you know that we have to have a God of judgment. Tim Keller, in the book Reason for God, paraphrases Wolf when he writes this, the human impulse to make perpetrators of violence pay for their crimes is almost an overwhelming one. Only if I am sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts, and settle all accounts perfectly, do I have the power to refrain. In a world of violence and evil, a God of justice and final judgment is actually essential. I suggest that it aligns with our internal sense of right and wrong and our need for justice that's in all of us. It also allows us, it allows us to hand evil people, perpetrators, over to God's hands and not take them in our own. Okay, but what about my grandmother? Grandma wasn't an evil sociopath. She wasn't a murderous dictator. How can you say she's going to hell? I think we have to ask two questions. What is sin and what is hell? When I say the word sin, what do you think of? My guess is if you ask the average person on the street, what is sin or name some sins, they would name either crimes like murder, robbery, rape, or they would say some sort of immorality, like lying, or lust, or greed, or deflating footballs in a playoff game, things that are sin. <laughs> Those are how we define sin, right? Immorality or crime. That's not how the Bible defines sin. Sin goes deeper, the Bible says. Christianity claims this is what sin is. Sin is living without regard for God. Any choice, action, thought, deed done without respect to God, done on my own. John Stott, Anglican pastor, writing on the book of Romans, put it this way, the essence of sin is godlessness. It is the attempt to get rid of God or the determination to live as though God didn't exist. Do you ever go through a day not thinking about God? Do you ever make choices in life without respect to God? Do you ever know what God says and you say, I don't care? Do you ever ignore, pretend like he doesn't exist at all? It's the root, it's the definition of sin. Romans 1 explains it in a very uh, logical format here as Paul lays out how the process works. He writes this in verses 19 and 20. Here's the problem. What can be known about God is plain to them, them being all people, us. Because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely God's eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. 
Paul's argument is this, when you look around the creation, whether it's the, the detail of a baby's toes and ears to the magnificence of the astrophysical universe, we know there's something more going on here. It's almost as if, as one atheist astrophysicist said, it's almost as if it was intended. Our conscience speaks to the reality of God. That sense in us of right and wrong and of justice is actually a God-implanted thing. It's what aligns us with there is a God because there are shared attributes of right and wrong amongst all creatures who are human. And I think we see it in the things that science, the hard sciences, can explain, like love, or why we appreciate beauty, or why when somebody dies we grieve. It's because we want them to live forever. And yet, Paul says, we reject that. There's no excuse. He goes on to say, here's how it plays out. Though we know about God, we neither honor him as God, verse 21, nor give thanks to him. Even though we know that God exists, we neither honor him nor give thanks to him. We don't acknowledge his existence. And this is hard, quite frankly, especially being modern Americans, because of two things. Because it's modernity, and we live in a merit-based society. How does that play out? Everything you have ever accomplished, you have accomplished, right? That's how our culture works. You work hard, you get a good career, you make money, you have investments. You work on relationships, you get married, you raise kids. You study late at night, you get straight A's. Merit-based. And when we look back on our life, we say, it was me. I did it. I know it wasn't me who got me born into this country or kept my heart beating, but I live as if it was me. And we live in modernity, in a world where we can control all of our environment. You know where you see this the most is in your home, right? God created the light, the, the heavens, the, the seasons, but inside of your home, you're God. You turn on the sun, you make it winter or summer. When you're hungry, the forest of food is right there in the fridge. And you even see it in why spouses fight so much over these things. The lights being left on, the door being shut, the thermostat setting, the refrigerator, the dishes being put away. It's because we're fighting to be God. I'm in control of this biosphere. It's mine. And it almost feels like we can do that, like we are in control. And so we don't honor, give thanks to, or acknowledge God. And then Paul goes on to explain what is called by theologians the great exchange. In verse 25, instead of the truth about God, they exchange the truth, we exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. What the Bible claims is this, and what's at the root of sin is this. We will worship something. You may not think about it that way, but we will worship something. If not God, it will be something else. 
because something or someone is ultimate for each of us. It's whatever motivates us. It's whatever our goal is in life. It's what can be called idols of our heart. It can even be good things that we make ultimate things. Things like family, or sex, or friends, or career. If these good things become ultimate things, they take our heart, and we will worship and serve them. It becomes what we are living for. How do you know if something else has your heart? Psychologist David Pallison wrote in an article called Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, he wrote this, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Who or what motivates my behavior, my thoughts and feelings? And therefore, who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? What is it for you? What sits on the throne of your heart? It's going to be something. We are meant, the Bible says, to find our hope in Jesus Christ, to make God our ultimate. But at the core, we all by nature worship and serve something else. And at the root of that something else is ourselves. We worship and serve ourselves. We, like Adam and Eve, are God. What is sin, the question we're asking? Sin is living without regard for God by being my own Lord and Savior. And all of us are guilty, even Grandma. So what is hell? The images of hell in the Bible are not very settling. Fire and brimstone, darkness, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you can read all of these things. But what I think is happening in these things is it's unclear if literally these are the things that are gonna be happening after death apart from God. And it is more that these are descriptions where language falls short. You find this in descriptions of heaven as well in the Bible. It's as if the authors are trying to pen language for something they can't put words to. And so they get as close as they can to try and evoke images. And the images that come out of the language of fire and darkness and weeping and gnashing is pain and aloneness and suffering and fear. And if you were going to sum up the biblical image of hell, it's this. Judgment and wrath of God, the judgment and wrath of God forever, forever. Romans 1 actually helps us to conceive of what this means a little better, because it talks about wrath, and it says God's wrath is us being given up or given over to something, and what we're given over to in hell is not devils with pitchforks. What we're given over to, according to the Bible, is ourselves forever you forever. If you really think about it, you might prefer the devils.
Paul writes about it here. He says, because we did not honor God or thank him, because we worshiped creation, worshiped ourselves instead. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. God gave them up. He handed them over. Because they rejected him, he gave them over, handed them over to their lusts, and that really is a word that means our deepest desires, our uber wants, what we really are after, our passions, our debased minds. God gave us over to our spiritual, our psychological, our intellectual wants. And the wrath of God, which we use as a metaphor for hell or an equivalence, the wrath of God, Paul says in verse 18, is revealed from heaven. Notice that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's present tense. It means it's continuing to happen even now. God's wrath is being revealed. In some way, God's wrath or hell is already being experienced. Given over, God gives us over even now. He gives us freedom. God's wrath is actually the freedom to do what we want, to seek our own ends unhindered. How is that being revealed even now? Whatever we pursue besides God ultimately enslaves us and chains us. You talk to AA friends, when, when I've talked to AA friends, uh, people in AA, they say this, they say, I have an addictive personality. And I think they're partly wrong. Because the implication is only alcoholics have addictive personalities. The Bible suggests we all are addicts. Addicts of something. Money, comfort, career, straight A's. And whatever it is that we are addicted to, that we pursue, will enslave us. If sex is your uber ultimate, the thing you're after, pleasure, enjoyment, you will constantly need more and more and more. The studies on pornography are very clear. There's a psychological effect, the equivalent of taking cocaine, so that every time you step into it and say yes, you have to get more, deeper, darker, more. You're never satisfied a year in like you were a day in. Or let's take something a little less uh, uncomfortable to talk about, friends. What if friends are your ultimate? Friends are good things, but if they become your ultimate, think about how they begin to enslave you. Always needing their approval, never sure you're accepted and liked enough, you need more praise, more words of affirmation, and it creates a neurosis too, right? You go to a party, the next day, what are you doing? Mulling the conversations you had. Did I say the right thing? Was I dressed the right way? Did I offend her? And God forbid that you should go on Facebook, where everyone else's friendships will be painted in front of you in all their glorious fun. And your absence from those photos will be glaringly obvious to you. If friends are your ultimate, your God and Savior, The more we serve other gods, the less and less joy we will find, and the more and more fear. C.S. Lewis, as usual, gives us 
a great description, a very disturbing description of how this is like hell. Hell, he writes, begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. Are you a complainer, a critic, a grumbler? It begins that way, but you are distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell. What might hell look like for you? Let's take it a step back. Think about the things that capture your heart, the things that you have fears of, that you must have hungers for. If you give yourself fully to those things and only to those things, what are you going to look like in 40 years? Or what will it look like in 1,000 years? More and more fear less and less joy forever. Paul writes in Romans, basically explaining that wrath, God's wrath, which is a way of talking about hell, is being given over to ourselves. In other words, if you want to know what hell is, hell is the eternal trajectory of a life turned towards anything but God. Hell is the eternal trajectory of a life turned towards anything but God. And so the objection from the beginning, how can a loving God send people to hell, has this answer. Why shouldn't God allow people their freely chosen path? He's just letting you do, letting me do what we want. Forever. C.S. Lewis, once again, makes it pretty simple when he writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Sin, as we're defining it here, sin is living apart from God. Hell is living apart from God forever. And so in that sense, hell is the ultimate freedom, the thing we're after. It's to do what we want as much as we want forever. Freedom from him. Freedom from God forever. But if there is any truth in the Bible, If there is any truth in the created order, in your conscience, in the things that you're aware of, in your loves and desires and beauty and hunger for eternity, then you don't want to be apart from God. Because apart from God is apart from all good. Without God, there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no love. Without God, there is no laughter, there is no warmth, there is no music, there is no bed to climb into at the end of the day. It's not so much, hey, at least all my friends will be down there too. Friends are a good thing. Don't look for them. It's forsakenness. Forsaken. 
is what the Bible talks about, to be forsaken forever. But God is love. Hear that, God is love. There is hell, but God is love. God loves us in this. God pursues us. Our nature is to reject God. God's nature is to choose us. We run away from God. God follows us. That famous passage that all the the athletes like to write, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, sent his only son to us that whoever believes in him should have eternal life, not perish, not endure wrath, but have eternal life. The joy and majesty of Christmas is God says, I will come to you. I will seek you. God pursues us even though we reject him. God loves us. How do we know? Because God then died for us. We often think about the horror of the cross as the nails and the whipping. And if you've seen Mel Gibson's take on it, you see all the ghastliness of execution by crucifixion. But the horror of the cross, according to the Bible, is not the pain and torture of it. It's the God-forsakenness of it. Jesus, the gospel tells us, Jesus experienced forsakenness for us. Even as he is in Gethsemane the night before, and he's praying, Jesus is saying, take this cup from me. He is already in Gethsemane beginning to feel the Father pull back from him for the first time to know what it's like to have life with God removing himself from him. And as he's hanging on the cross, it's not just the nails or the blood or the torture. It is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing hell in its fullness for us. Jesus suffered hell on the cross so you and I can enjoy heaven. That is the gift of God's love for us. God loves us because he offers us pardon, forgiveness, eternal life, heaven, by grace, because of what he did. We want a loving and forgiving God, and God says, I am. I died for you. I will experience my own wrath for you if you will just receive it. So what do we need to do? Most often you hear a sermon about hell and you think, gosh, I gotta be a better person. More religious, nicer, nicer to my brother, nicer to my mom. Give to church, give to CCV, Christ Church Vienna. Yes, you actually should. That's, that, that will get you into heaven. No, seriously. All you have to do is admit and believe. Admit that you live apart from God. Admit that you seek to be your own savior and God. In other words, admit you're a sinner in the biblical sense. And believe in Jesus, that he died for you, that he is Lord and savior. Let Jesus be your God and not something else. 
Hell is not a pleasant topic, right? But it is a sobering one. Let's get to some very harsh realities. Everyone in here is going to die. Every one of us. Do you know if your death is going to be sudden and tragic or slow, peaceful, and drawn out? Will you have time to make a decision and change your mind? Or when you leave here, is it the last time we see you? Who can know? According to the CDC, the annual mortality rate in the United States is 821 deaths per 100,000 people. Every year, 821 out of 100,000 people die in America. In a room this big, that's two of us. Two of us, by statistical standards, will not be here a year from now. At some point, the Bible claims, your chosen life trajectory will become your forever trajectory. But God is love. And for those who put their faith in Christ, regardless of sins and addictions and failures, regardless of our past history or our present or our future, it is finished. Judgment, wrath, hell have already been dealt with. If you put your faith in Christ, the only thing that awaits is heaven. As is usually the case with God, the choice is yours. Let's pray. God, everything inside of us rebels against even this notion of hell and judgment and wrath. It does not seem right. If it is true, and I believe it is, break through our hard hearts, our desire to serve ourselves and to be Lord of our life. Give us a glimpse that you really are who you say you are and you took care of hell for us. And give us the ability each day to put our trust in you, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.